Hello and welcome to Filibustering Museology, a podcast series where we discuss what museum specialists do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today, James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU, Susie Chung, an adjunct instructor and academic team lead at SNHU, and I are talking to Deborah Ziska. Deborah is a lecturer for Johns Hopkins University. She's a member of the board of the International Council of Museums, or ICOM. She's also a member of the board for the Art Museum of the Americas, which is part of the Organization of American States. And she is the former Chief of Communications for the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we will discuss Deborah's roles in each of those institutions, and we're going to talk about her participation in a variety of museum projects, especially throughout Latin America. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Deborah Ziska. I'm a native Washingtonian. I live in the nation's capital. And I am currently uh, retired after 40-some years in public relations, the last three decades in the museum field. And I've been teaching for 10 years at Johns Hopkins University online. I am now teaching in my retirement two courses, which speak to the different aspects of my career, one of them in museums and one of them in international development. I'm also uh, sit on the boards of two boards with the International Council of Museums and the Art Museum of the Americas at the Organization of American States. And Deborah, would you mind sharing a little bit more about your um, education background, just the different types of degrees that you pursued and how they helped you achieve your goals in your professional in the professional industry? Well, I started out as a studio art major at the Maryland Institute College of Art um, in my freshman year. Um, I then transferred to the University of Maryland, where I ended up, I tinkered around with several different majors, and I ended up in advertising design, but I also focused on art history, um, English literature, and radio, television, and filmmaking. I graduated in 1975, and I pretty much fell into a career in public relations around the Washington area because it answered all of the skills and things I enjoy doing and what I learned in college. And so basically I have a Bachelor of Science. Over the years I have taken some graduate courses. I took some courses in telecommunications policy at George Washington. But other than that, um, my teaching is pretty much based on my career and my experience in museums. We'd love to hear more about your experiences at the National Gallery of Art. I was there for 27 years. I started out as a publicist in 1988. I became head of the press office the fall of 95. And I don't know <clears throat> how long you all have been around, but that was when uh, we had the first exhibition, the largest exhibition ever done of the works by Johannes Vermeer, an artist who's better known today, but was not really well known outside of the art world at that time. And he, uh, if memory serves me correctly, there are only about 30-some paintings known by this great Dutch master. We had well over 20 of those works in the exhibition, which was a miracle at the time, to get that many works together in one place. It was a rather historic exhibition, and of course we had advanced passes were gone six months before the show opened. Um, we opened to phenomenal reviews from all the major media, see the girl with the pearl earring, the view of Delft, to see all these great masterpieces in one place was something no one had ever expected to happen. But what happened a couple of weeks after we opened the show, the government shut down. Three days later, 
there was a press conference on the lawn of the National Gallery of Art because we, of course, are a federally supported institution. And it was the Republican Congress, President Clinton was then in the White House, and they were having a press conference in front of the Johannes Vermeer sign outdoors and said, the reason you can't see this exhibition that everybody's been dying to see is because the White House has shut down <laughs> the National Gallery of Art. So basically, we were caught between the White House and Congress. Long story short, there were two shutdowns over several weeks in November and December. There were two blizzards. I became the acting head of the press office on the day that the government shut down. So in the course of that, uh, by the end of the show, <laughs> I was the head of the press office, let's say. We ended up opening the show during the second shutdown with private funds with permission from the government to do that in the White House. We opened the gallery a couple days after Christmas with private funds, and people were lined up all around the West Building of the National Gallery, thousands of people. We had TV trucks up and down Constitution Avenue. And what happened was people could only they could come in, they could see the show, they could buy a catalog, they could use the restroom, and they could leave. And that went on for a few days before we could reopen with public funds again. But that was such a major art event, kind of a cataclysmic art event. It was it showed how people, how much people wanted access to their public institutions and wanted access to their parks, to their museums. So finally, Congress and the White House came to a um, agreement on the federal budget, and everything reopened. But it was a great moment for art museums in the United States. Could you also talk a little bit about your role with the International Council of Museums? I was very active in the American Alliance of Museums for many years. They housed the U.S. Committee of the International Council of Museums. We separated from the American Alliance of Museums because the International Council of Museums is actually a representative organization to UNESCO. We represent museums globally. It is the ICOM is the only international organization of museums that represents all museums around the world to the United Nations. So we started our own uh, national committee you know, uh, separately from the American Alliance of Museums about, ooh, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And we started fresh with the membership. I think we're up to about 1,200 members now, perhaps a little more than that. I sit on the board. We are basically your passport to the world of museums. There are some 30 special committees for small museum specialties, all professions that if you become a member of ICOM, you can join one of those committees. We have conferences going on every week, somewhere around the world. Often, there are many conferences being held in the United States. And I also work, I'm also a member of the board of the Marketing and Public Relations Committee of ICOM. And we are now planning our annual conference in Chicago uh, this coming fall. Yes, right before the International Committee for Museology's conference in Iran, so could you also speak a little bit about your Latin American Alliance project with the Organization of American States? Right. Earlier in my career, I worked in international development, uh, mostly with women's organizations. And we did a lot of work throughout the Americas. So I have that background. And I'm the, also the eternal student of Spanish. I've been trying to learn Spanish for most of my life, off and on. So I travel a lot in, in, that, in the hemisphere. So as a member of ICOM, the U.S. Committee of ICOM, I've been very interested in how we can form stronger alliances within the Western Hemisphere, within the Americas. I think throughout history, there has been politically and, and in other ways, a relationship to third countries, a separation between North America and South America, or the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. 
and I feel that things have come a long way, and we are now in a, in a period of time where we can, in the, in the world of museums, there's a lot happening in Latin America, in the Caribbean, and it's no longer, no longer that the best examples are North America or South America. I think they can learn from each other. So what I've been doing is I create, I'm developing a course for Johns Hopkins University called Museums of the Americas, Facing Challenges in the 21st Century. And basically inspired by the diverse cultures, the heritage of the Americas, I'm encouraging my students to think in new ways about the root causes of three issues, social and economic disparity, climate change and environmental degradation, and cultural identity and heritage destruction. And then we're exploring how museums throughout the Americas are responding to each of those issues in different ways. And there's a focus on community-oriented museums um, and the diverse specialties. Um, and so that's what I found when I traveled to Columbia last fall. So there's a, there's a conference, the Art Alliance of the Americas and the TIPA Fundacion TIPA of Argentina have been organizing biannual conferences. And the last one was held in Medellin, Colombia last November. I had also seen last year, 2017, I think, a piece on 60 Minutes about Medellin, Colombia. Of course, we all know about how Medellin was once one of the worst cities in the world in terms of crime and drugs and murder. There were two programs on 60 Minutes, and one of them had was about how, alongside what the government was doing to uh, mediate with the rebels and to bring them back into society, Medellin was also taking great strides. And there had been a group of great thinkers and people in Medellin who were who were trying to figure out how can we change this dynamic? How can we reimagine how people live in society? What can we do? People from science, people from literature, people from government, people from business had been meeting since the 90s to talk about this. And while the government was now doing its making efforts in terms of drugs and the, rebels, the situation with the rebels um, and things were improving there, there was a new uh, mayor, a former math professor actually, of Medellin, who was a progressive leader. And this was the moment in the early 2000s that Columbia had to make, to move forward with these plans that they'd been talking about for such a long time. And there's a museum called Parque Explora. One of the things they did, they made, uh, they built fantastic libraries, community centers, uh, museums that were all community oriented, and they located them in the worst parts of Medellin, the worst neighborhoods were now being serviced by some of the finest libraries, finest museums, cultural centers where they could meet. So then that was one part of the program. One of these museums is Parque Explora, which is an interactive science museum, which is uh, located next to the neighborhood of Moravia. That happened to be the place, the venue, that hosted the conference, El Museo Reimaginado, which is Museums Reimagined. It was attended by museum professionals from all over the Americas, primarily. It was an opportunity for me to attend that conference, but also to, I went ahead of time to interview the uh, director, Andres Roldan, of Parque Explora to find out directly from him what it meant to run a new type of museum, a new example of a museum that was, I wanted to find out how they did what they did, <laughs> what they were doing that was so different, what kind of an impact they were having in the community. And Medellin has really turned around. We did a number of other things, but so I that became part of my course. I'm doing interviews. I did interviews, Andres Roldan, 
and people on his staff. And essentially, they have one program, which I delved into quite deeply. And before I go deeper into that, what I'd like to say is I'd also attended, I think the basic idea I'm getting, I'm moving towards right now is the idea that I'm interested in innovations and sustainable practices of community-oriented museums, of how museums are responding to their communities are they listening to their community? It's, not, it's no longer a one-way street. It's really a two-way street that museums depend on the communities and communities depend on museums. And that's the only way that you're sustainably going to move forward as a museum community. And so what happened at Parque Explora, for instance, was there's a community called uh, Moravia where one of, it was one of the poorer communities where a lot of crime was happening, a lot of drugs. And it's also a mountain of garbage where people had lived for many years. It was very unsanitary, you can imagine all the problems. And there was also domestic violence was a problem. So one of the things the staff at Parkway Explorer did early on was they invited some of the mothers into, they had a kitchen at the museum, and they invited them in to, to cook their food and to have dinner, to have lunch with the staff. And of course, it's a very family-oriented culture, so the mothers would bring their children with them. And this happened over a series of months. And there was no um, agenda part of the museum. But what they did was they listened to the women and they learned from the women. And out of this, long story short, grew an exhibition based on 1001 um, Arabian Nights, where the women told their stories as characters in the Arabian Nights because it was too embarrassing to tell their personal stories. But this led to an exhibition where they actually told their stories as characters. And <laughs> it was easier for them to explain their situations that way and, and some of the things that they were doing to change their lives. Another thing that happened was they gradually were, did some gardening projects where the women started growing food at the, at the museum. And the mountain of garbage has now become this beautiful garden where they grow food, where they grow flowers, and they have a nonprofit as well. And they have a hothouse on the top so they, they can make a profit, they can make money to support um, their activities and support their families. There's a science connection, but there was, they were also filling a need of the community, that, but the community had expressed the need to the museum. So it wasn't the museum going to the community saying, here's how you can make this garbage dump into something beautiful. It was no, it was the people of the, of the community saying, we need better nutrition, we need more resources. Um, and so basically what they're doing is they're using agriculture and horticulture to improve their lives in this community. So it's science-based, but it has a practical application. So this course that you're teaching sounds really interesting, and I love this connection that you're talking about between museum, community, community engagement, and local communities. And I think the story that you just told really helps to capture the uh, steps that are being taken in that area. I was wondering if we could take a little step back from community to the bigger picture to talk about politics and not only regional politics, but national politics impact this. You told that really great story about how the government shutdown in the U.S. in 95 impacted the National Gallery and your work there. And I was wondering if you could expand beyond that to some of the political changes that have been happening throughout the Americas and how those are impacting not only local communities and local museums, but national museums in those areas as well. Well, I suppose a good place for me to start in terms of what I'm doing in my life is I'm, I sit on the board of the um, Friends of the Art Museum of the Americas, 
which is part of the Organization of American States here, based here in Washington, D.C. And the, the Organization of American States brings together all the countries of the Americas. There are 35 independent states plus observer countries in the European Union. And they have four pillars. They, they just finished the Summit of the Americas um, in Lima, Peru. Our vice president went because um, President Trump was unable to go due to the situation in Syria. But there are four, basically four pillars that the OAS is founded on, and the Art Museum of the Americas has programs, visual components, art programs that reflect those four pillars. Those four pillars are democracy, human rights, security, and development. And so the Art Museum, which actually was the, is the oldest museum of modern and contemporary Latin American and Caribbean art in the United States, grew out of, it's been around since the 60s, early 70s, presents exhibitions, presents programs that reflect one of those areas. Uh, and what we do is we accept proposals from different countries, from artists, from curators throughout the Americas. And so I'm on the advisory committee of the Art Museum. I'm also on the Friends Association. So through the advisory committee, I work with other scholars and people with different backgrounds to try to select exhibitions that will have some community outreach and message in terms of representing the organization of American States, not just locally, but we're trying to expand the message nationally. I'm also, we're also raising money as a member of the Friends of the Art Museum of the Americas. We're trying to raise money. We just printed the first catalog last August, first catalog in decades that's been done, featuring 100 of the most important works in the collection of the Art Museum of the Americas. And one really interesting thing is a lot of the major artists of Latin America launched their careers in North America here in Washington at the Art Museum. So there's a lot of uh, potential to do a lot more with that, and I think to connect with countries throughout the Americas, not just in, with exhibitions in Washington, but to have we have six potential traveling exhibitions, which we can travel around the United States that will also bring a message about democracy in the Americas, about human rights and uh, economic development and security. So that's one way that I am working with an organization that deals with politics, but deals with it in a more unifying way, not, not, not to divide, but to unite, which I think is also the purpose of the summit that they just convened last weekend in Lima. That's really interesting. And the story that you were telling about the redevelopment or even maybe just the new development of museums in the rougher areas of Medellin, I wonder... Do you think that that's going to be a trend going forward in other places around the world? I'm thinking about, I live in Columbus, Ohio, which obviously doesn't have the nefarious reputation of Medellin, but there is a big push recently to do major redevelopments to branch libraries in the poorer areas of town, and there's new uh, museum centers starting to pop up in, in what would in earlier years would be considered rougher areas of town and all of that. And so I'm wondering, do you see that as kind of a trend that's happening worldwide that might lead? I, mean, I can see obviously how it can really lead to the revitalization of specific neighborhoods, but it seems like this has a lot of potential for revitalizing possibly entire cities, possibly entire countries. Uh, do you see that that's happening kind of on a larger basis? Oh, absolutely. It's happening. Medellin is a great example, and uh, they actually. The mayor of Medellin and representatives of Medellin are traveling to Mexico and other countries. They've even traveled to the United States to talk about their success 
and how museums and libraries and cultural centers and schools in the poorest neighborhoods are changing lives, are changing communities. And you can see it in Oaxaca, Mexico. I saw it happening in Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil. And what's interesting is I think it's a different dynamic than what we've had before. I think we sometimes we sit here in the United States and we think that we are the greatest, or we have all the answers, or we've been, we're, you know, we're ahead of the curve. Meanwhile, things are developing in the rest of the world, and we can learn a lot from what's been happening, for instance, in Colombia or in Mexico. I also, there are also a number of examples in Africa, for instance, where communities themselves, in some cases, the best example I can think of that that I've had a personal experience with is in Rio de Janeiro. You're familiar with the favelas, which are the poor communities of squatters that developed on the hillsides of Rio de Janeiro, very poor areas, a lot of crime, very crime-ridden, drug-ridden. I was there for an ICOM International Council of Museums Triennial, uh, Worldwide Triennial Conference in 2013. After the conference was over, the Ethnological Committee, I joined them for a two-day visit in the favelas. And the first favela that we visited was an example, and I'm sorry I can't remember the name, but I'll try to send it to the website afterwards. And what happened there was the community themselves, I think in, in, the, in the beginning they did work with the foundation, but now they're on their own. And what they did was they invited artists of Brazil to their favela to tell the history of the people in the favela. And they painted murals on the walls and the sides of buildings as you went up through the favela. It's like walking through an, art, an outdoor art museum, telling the history, the backgrounds, where the people came from, what they've been through, and where they've come to now. And so it was like, if you wanted to visit the favela, you could not just walk in like a tourist. You, um, a member of the community is trained to take you on the tour. So they own it. They, they control the, the tourism in the favela. And so they kept saying, at the, end of the, at the end of this tour, we're going to take you into our museum. And so we looked forward to that. So at the end of the tour, we went into their museum. Well, the museum, first floor was a Catholic chapel. And then as you went up, the second floor had a computer lab. And then there was an arts and crafts area. And then there was a small shop where they sold their crafts. On the top floor, there was a community space where the community could meet and have gatherings. And so I said, well, that's interesting. I said, how can you have a chapel in your museum? And they said, well, um, we needed support from the Catholic Church, and they gave us money if we could put a chapel in. And the chapel is an important part of our life. So to them, their museum was a combination of these murals on the walls in the streets of the favela telling their history and a community center where they had a computer lab for children to learn how to work on computers where they had arts and crafts classes, where they could have community gatherings, and where they worshiped. That, to them, was their museum. So it's, it's, owned, it's run and managed by the community, and they have a, their own website, and they raise money. So that's, that was my first association with that type of community museum was three years ago. And then I, start, then I heard about what was happening in Medellin. And since then, I've been studying this topic. And there's a huge movement in Oaxaca, Mexico, where the communities themselves uh, set up their own museums, and they work with what's unique about the community in terms of their history. Usually it has to do with cultural heritage. Often that's the, um, the point at which the community organizes. They want to tell the story of their community, of their group, of their, their own heritage, usually indigenous heritage. 
quite often, which of course is one of the classic issues that we all share from Canada down to Argentina, is a lack of recognition of indigenous cultures, a lack of understanding the history of European and indigenous cultures. Finally, I think indigenous peoples are finding way, are finding many ways. We hear it about um, bears, bears ears, for instance, in our own country out west. What we're talking about now is how communities of indigenous peoples are now able to claim their right to tell their own story. And often when they're doing this, they will have a, they will build a museum, cultural center, a cultural community center, where they can meet and present their story and have their community activities. So that's basically a very kind of general way of talking about this, but I think it's a, it's a very interesting movement that's happening primarily in the Southern Hemisphere, but also uh, with indigenous communities in our, in our own country. So you spoke about the Brazilian favela project. Is this connected with the Mare Museum? It's to educate and politicize Mare's young people. And recently, Mariel Franco, who is actually the product of one of the museum community projects, she was brought up in the favelas. Right. Uh, the Museum of Tomorrow, which is the English you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very beautifully designed, I think it, it, it does relate to one of the favela communities. It, it's, it kind of juts out, or it's a peninsula that juts out from Rio over the, over the water. And they have some very interactive, I think one of the features of that museum, it's not, not so much what I would call a community. It's not a museum that was derived from the community, but it does serve and interact with the community. So there are, very, there are many variations on the theme of community museums. I think, um, I can't remember the name of the foundation that started Museum of, Museum of Tomorrow, but they are very focused on serving the community and, and interacting with the community. And as a matter of fact, the, the same thing happened in Medellin. Um, I believe that the favelas and the poor communities around the Museum of Tomorrow, Rio, have free admission. And they also get very involved in, they have participatory meetings with the staff of the museum, and they are able to have a voice in the exhibitions that are shown and some of the, the content that's presented at the museum. Um, I believe they also become, they also perform there. So they have a very close relationship and they interact with the museum. An interesting thing about the museums I talked about in Medellin is there's also the, the aspect of sustainability, how to, how do these museums sustain themselves? And they do have to charge admission. However, one thing they do in Medellin is that they, um, if you bring your, your gas bill or utility bill, um, there are certain neighborhoods that they know by their codes that are living, they live in the poorer neighborhoods. And that's how, if you present this bill, you get, your, your family gets in for free. So there's free admission um, for people with lower income. And that's just one way they've developed of, of dealing with that. So, but they also, Parfait Explorer has also been doing some very interesting things, more creative ways. If and when government funding decreases or runs down, uh, they are creating products such as developing retreats for corporations or organizations, uh, museum retreats. Again, I think Nadine is kind of leading the way and advancing some very creative ways not only to, to be a part of the community and to, to serve the community, to listen to, to listen to the community, but also to think about how it's going to have a life in the future and sustain itself 
in new ways. Yeah, and I think that's going to be an interesting thing that hopefully we will tackle at the uh, ICOFOM Symposium in uh, September. Sure. Do you have anything that you'd like to recommend to us today? Link to the ICOM US website, which I worked on last summer, because I believe very much in what ICOM is doing <laughs> worldwide. Um, and I, I believe it is a window, it is, it's probably the best way for museum professionals to connect to, the, to a global network of professionals like ourselves, not only to gain new perspectives, but to get new ideas, to share issues, to gain a wider perspective on the world. I think we share so much. Once we start talking with, our, with professionals from other countries, we realize we have similar issues, similar problems, similar politics. <laughs> We're all dealing with shared issues and challenges, particularly on the environmental front. We didn't even get to that today. What is the role of natural history in science museums around the world in terms of the climate change and destruction of the environment? These problems are so big, socioeconomic disparity, climate change, cultural heritage. These are all issues that every society, every culture, every country shares with the rest of the world. And even small museums can make differences in their community, and museums are everywhere. So if museums can do this, if we can share our ideas, our challenges, our solutions, um, our programs, what we're doing, if we can learn from each other, I think museums can have a huge impact uh, on making the world a better place, <laughs> both locally and internationally. Agreed. <laughs> I, I support that 100% also. And we have to get out of our comfort zone. I think that's one thing I would love to see. And, and, and joining organizations like the American Alliance of Museums, which does work throughout the Americas now, or the um, International Council of Museums, which connects you to the whole world, literally. And we have to open up our minds to politics, to issues, to new ways of thinking that might, we might not find easy or comfortable. Um, and that's the only way that we're going to learn and change and grow. Definitely. Susie, do you have anything to recommend to us today? I do. So Deborah worked on two press coverages. There are two exhibitions. And the websites are still up. And it's this beautiful exhibit that, that people can read about still on the Smithsonian Institution's website, Freer and Sackler Galleries. Uh, she covered the art of the Quran, treasures from the Museum of Turkish and Islamic Art, and also another beautiful exhibit called The Turquoise Mountain, Artists Transforming Afghanistan, and they also have a YouTube video that covers the exhibit, which was from March 2016 to October 2017, but they still have digitally preserved these exhibits. And right. I'm still in touch, actually, with one of the artists who was whose work was shown in that exhibit. Oh, it's I beautiful. Found... Is he the potter in the video? The pot, well, the potter was one of them, and the other is a calligrapher, a woman, who actually stayed at my house when she, was, when she came during the exhibition. One of the great things about Turquoise Mountain is, and that exhibition, it showed the work of artists who are getting training through this wonderful organization called Turquoise Mountain, start, started by at the request of the Prince of Wales and the then president of Afghanistan. And it basically transformed a district of old Kabul, Afghanistan, which was a slum. And 
that had you know undergone you know years of violence and war and and, and poverty and just incredible situations uh, that they've had to deal with in Afghanistan through the years. And basically, they cleaned out the uh, old city. They've trans they've renovated the beautiful old architecture, and they established a training center um, based on the traditional crafts and arts of Afghanistan. And they are graduating these mostly young people. They're in woodworking, jewelry design, ceramics, pottery. And what they do is they return to their communities. They're on the web. And they're responding to the market globally. And so they are able to earn a living with their art, with their craft. But they've also totally transformed this community in um, Kabul, Afghanistan. So what this exhibition did was it spotlighted the work of Turquoise Mountain and the actual stories of several of these artists who came to Washington to demonstrate their craft, but also talk about how learning this craft has changed their life. Uh, and I think what it does is I think a lot of us think about how people in countries, war-torn, poor countries, developing countries, have no control over their lives. But sometimes you, once you start learning about what people have been dealing with, these are some of the bravest, most intelligent, most talented people you would ever want to meet. And those were certainly um, the stories, once you hear the stories of the people like these artists in Turquoise Mountain, I was very proud to be able to have an opportunity that Fierce Tackler gave me as a consultant to promote the stories uh, of these artists at Turquoise Mountain. It was a, it was a great experience. Uh, James, do you have anything to uh, recommend for us today? Sure. I haven't been there yet or seen the space, but on April 26th of uh, 2018, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice will be opening in Montgomery, Alabama. There's been a lot of press about this recently. The memorial is built around the experience of racial terror and lynchings in the U.S. and it makes some interesting and slightly controversial, um, or at least it's gaining a lot of conversation, connections between this history of racial terror and lynchings to um, modern incarcerations and racial issues that are currently in, in the news with the police forces. So I'm really excited to <clears throat> get the opportunity to visit that memorial once it's open and I get a chance to make it to Montgomery. One of the really interesting parts of this memorial actually is that it sounds like there are 800 different steel structures uh, that re represent a lynching that has occurred in 800 different counties and the counties are actually being encouraged to take those structures back to their counties as visual representations of the lynchings that happened there in American history. So very excited for the opportunity to visit this place, hopefully sometime later in 2018. That comes, um, we just celebrated uh, recently the first anniversary of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, which sits right next to the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., which tells that story in, in a huge way of, of the African-American story of our country, which is a shared history. And I think now that we have the, the, the lynching memorial that you're talking about, and I think coming on the heels of the, um, the Museum of African-American History in Mississippi as well. So I think this is, um, and, and we also see the rise of, um, I just went to a panel about the Bears Ears Heritage Site uh, National Monument that we're concerned about out west in our own country. So I think this is a great moment in, our, in the history of our country and what museums are now answering a great need to tell the story of our country in new ways, to tell a more transparent story 
of all the people of our country. Okay, and so I will do my recommendation. There is a video game series called Assassin's Creed, and this video game series is about an assassin, but each entry in the video game series is set in a different time period. So there are some versions of the game that are in ancient Egypt. Uh, there's one that's in revolutionary America, one that's in revolutionary France, one that's in London in the 1860s, I believe it is. And so there's been a lot of praise for the actual history that's involved in these games. They actually have historians on staff with this video game developer, and they strive for accuracy in the visuals, in the costumes, the speaking patterns, that kind of thing. And so the video game series Assassin's Creed has received a lot of good vibes <laughs> from historians, I suppose you could say. One thing that they've done recently is they decided to try in one of their games, the one for Ancient Egypt, they sent out an update to the game where you can play the game, but they stripped away all of the storyline so that you can simply explore the environment that the video game is taking place in. And each of those video games has a very open-ended environment that you run around in. So you're not constrained by just going through a certain prescribed path. You actually have, it's an open environment. So you can run around, you can go in different buildings, you can explore, and by all accounts, it's a very accurate re representation of these particular environments. And so in this new update for the ancient Greece, or sorry, ancient Egypt game, it's called uh, Assassin's Creed Origins. And so you're exploring through, you can go walk through the pyramids, you can walk through various other sites and they built in a whole bunch of interactive tours in conjunction with leading authorities on Egypt so that you can go to the the pyramid wherever and then you can take a tour of it based on the you know, historians that are actually active in in that and so it sounds like it's a really interesting way to introduce people to other time periods like that and I haven't played this one yet, but the demos of it and the videos I've seen of it are actually really cool because you get to walk around this recreation of ancient Cairo and various different places in ancient Egypt and just, just walk around and just see what it looked like. Obviously, you know, we can't really do that today, so it, it's, it's all an artistic representation, but it's based on pretty good representation or recreations of stuff that anthropologists have discovered and archaeologists and historians and all of that. So it sounds like it's a really interesting development, and I have no idea if they're going to do this with other games or not. I kind of hope they do. I think it'd be really cool to walk around, say, revolutionary-era Boston or revolutionary Paris or London or something like that. I think it'd be really cool to be able to just walk around that area and see what you're able to find. So I think with that, we can call it a day here. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us today. You're welcome enjoyed it and thank you all for joining us today if you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com for james fennessy Susie chung and deborah ziska i am rob denning have an excellent day